Imagine you find a treasure map, and, and you open this map up, and you look at it, and there's a whole page that's just describing the treasure to where this map leads. And in it, it says there's so much money, this treasure has so much money that your grandkids, your great-grandkids are going to be taken care of for life. This treasure has anything you want. It's got whatever you want. It's got a trip to the Bahamas. It's got lifetime supply of Snickers, whatever you like. The, the point is, you want this treasure. You want this treasure so bad. And so you open it up, and it tells you to start traveling west and go to California. It's got directions and it's got pictures. It tells you to start going west to California. And it says, once you're in California, go to Los Angeles, and then when you get to Los Angeles, you see that the map simply has a giant circle around Los Angeles, and it says the treasure's here in Los Angeles. And that's how it ended. How would you feel? You'd be upset, right? Because the map and those instructions are not specific enough to get you to the treasure. The instructions, they led you in the right direction, but they weren't enough to get you to the actual treasure. And that's an illustration of what we see happen in Scripture often. Most of the Jewish people, they, they believed in Yahweh, they followed the law, but that wasn't enough when we get to the new covenant. In our text, we see some men who not only believed in Yahweh, but they also believed in John the Baptist, the one who's preparing the way for the Lord. And the problem with the Jews and with these men in our text is that they don't have enough revelation. They don't have enough instruction. Following the Old Testament isn't enough if you don't find the Messiah the Old Testament's pointing to. Following John the Baptist isn't enough if you're not looking to the one that he was preparing the way for. It's like being told there's a treasure in Los Angeles. It's just not specific enough. Last time we were in Acts, we saw that Paul had been traveling for a long period of time. Every city he goes to, there's persecution, persecution, persecutions, beatings, imprisonment. Everywhere he goes, finally he comes to Corinth, and God tells Paul in Corinth that I'm going to give you a year and a half of peaceful missionary work. You're going to stay here, you're going to work, there's not going to be any, uh, you're not going to get arrested, you're not going to be beat, you're just going to have peaceful, fruitful work. The end of chapter 18, it narrates Paul leaving Ephesus or Corinth and traveling to Antioch. But then he leaves Antioch and goes to Ephesus. The very last section of chapter 18 is interesting. It speaks about a man named Apollos, and he understood the scriptures well. And he actually knew a little bit about Jesus, but he didn't know enough. It's clear that he didn't know everything. Because Priscilla and Aquila had to take Apollos to the side and they had to explain to him the way of God 
more accurately. They had to give him more instruction. And I think Luke puts that story here of a man who had some truth about God, was heading in the right direction, but didn't see Jesus as Messiah and Lord. I think he puts that here because it's going to be very similar to our narrative in chapter 19. We're going to see something very similar happen. So in our text, Paul arrives at Ephesus and he finds some disciples. And they have a little bit of truth, but it's not enough truth to save them. Now this says disciples, but they're not really spirit-filled Jesus followers. They're just, it just says disciples. They're disciples of John. And Paul asked them in verse 2, he says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul knew that since the resurrection that marked the beginning of the new age, that marked the new age breaking in the midst of a fallen world, and he knew that the way this new age came about, the way that people became new, was by receiving the Holy Spirit and becoming new. And so that's why he asked them, if you are a Christian, if you're a part of the new age, if you're the first fruit of God's new world, you will have the Spirit. And so that's why he says, did you receive the Spirit? They give a surprising answer in verse 2. No. We haven't even heard that there's a spirit. Never even heard about it. So much like many of other religions in the world, these men believed in religion without power. They never heard of the spirit or that they should receive him. And so Paul investigates further. Look at verse 3. He says, Into what then were you baptized? And they answered him, Into John's baptism. This narrative, it's going to bring up a lot of issues. There's going to be a lot of problems in this text, and we're going to talk about that. But I'm going to read verses 4 to 7 first so we get the whole picture before I begin discussing these issues. Paul responds, John Pat baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, I want to hit the pause button on this narrative for a second. Because if you're following along, like I said, this text brings up lots of issues. Many people teach baptism is the moment that we receive the Holy Spirit. They say at baptism, that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. To put it doctrinally, technically, this is called baptismal regeneration. Regenerate means to regrow. It means to become new. And they argue that baptism is God's means for making people new. It's God's means for receiving the Holy Spirit. You go in the water, you get the Spirit. The Roman Catholic Church teaches baptismal regeneration. The Church of Christ teaches baptismal regeneration. And they're going to point to a lot of 
different places in Scripture. One place, interesting, uh, interestingly, uh, interestingly enough, is Jesus' baptism. Right? What happens at Jesus' baptism? So he's in the water, and then the Spirit starts descending on him as a dove. And they'll argue the Spirit descending is a physical representation of what's happening to people spiritually when they get baptized. They'll also argue from Peter when he says, baptism now saves you. What does that mean? And they'll also point to different places in Acts where it seems like people are receiving the Spirit at baptism. Repeat Acts 2.38 over and over again. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In our text, chapter 19, it's also one of the strongest texts to support their view. You see what's happening in this text. You guys see that? Paul asked them if they received the Holy Spirit. He asked, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? And the way that Paul finds out if they received the Spirit is by asking them about their baptism. You guys see that? And what they'll say is, you see, this text assumes that baptism is the means to receive the Spirit. Otherwise, why would he even ask that? Why would he talk about baptism? This argument, it goes directly against Protestant teaching, and I'll uh, explain later why uh, it's, it's Protestant teaching. But it goes against Protestant teaching because Protestants do not believe that we receive the Spirit at baptism. We believe that we receive the Spirit the moment we repent and believe the gospel, not at baptism. Some groups take it a step further than the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of Christ. They not only teach that we receive the Spirit at baptism, but they say you actually have to say the words in Jesus' name or you won't receive the Spirit. Where do they get that? Look at verse 3. They were baptized in John's baptism and they didn't receive the Spirit. So they'll say, yeah, you see, you do a wrong baptism, you don't get the Spirit. But then they look at verses 5 to 7, where they were baptized in Jesus' name, and then they receive the Spirit. You guys see that in verses 5 to 7? You have, they say you have to get the formula right. This, this idea that you have to be baptized in Jesus' name to receive the Spirit is... Uh, it comes from what's called oneness Pentecostals. This isn't the normal Pentecostals that you hear about. This is called oneness Pentecostals. I actually was in a oneness Pentecostal church for a couple months. And I will never forget my time there. You guys have heard my conversion story uh, probably a couple times by now. But soon after I became a believer, I wanted a church to go to. And I didn't know what to go to. I know there's so many denominations out there. I didn't know what was the true church. I didn't know who was teaching true doctrine. I didn't know where John 3.16 was. And so I had a friend that I worked with. I was in the military. We were both cooks. And he said, I've seen changes in you. I see that you're really serious about God. He said, I used to go to church and I haven't been in a long time. I know I need to go. Why don't we go to church together? I'll take you to the church that I used to go to. And like I said, I don't know anything about John, even where John 3.16 is, so I agree. It, it, and it was a oneness Pentecostal church. 
And I remember when I showed up, everyone was real friendly, and uh, they were very kind, but I also remember a lot of strange things that were happening there. First, uh, there were strange things with the leadership there. They sort of had this idea that maybe they're a little bit better than others. Like, for instance, we would go to lunch uh, after church, and everybody at this church, this tiny church, they'd sit together at a table, but all the leaders would sit at another table, and, and they would actually try to sit way away from us. And they did strange things during the service as well. So during the singing, imagine we're singing in here, and while we're singing, the congregation is all holding hands and running in circles around the auditorium. That's what was happening during the singing. This would also happen during the preaching as well. You know, during the preaching, people would start standing up and they would scream and they would, you know, holler and, you know, do all kinds of things. It was full of emotion and, and sensationalism. And one thing I noticed, it was as if hearing the word of God, it just wasn't enough. They had to have a lot of emotion. They had to have something to energize them, to make them excited to come to church. Another strange thing, though, was the the weekly prayer meeting, they, they was discouraging me from coming to the weekly prayer meeting. I didn't know why. I showed up anyway. And went Friday night, and they're all, uh, just, you know, rolling around on the floor, screaming, running around, uh, praying, and, and they're speaking. It's, it's gibberish. They're calling it speaking in tongues, but it's really just gibberish. This is not, they're not, this is not the gift of speaking in tongues. And I guess that they didn't want me to see them doing that. The worst thing, though, and relevant to our discussion about them was the teaching, their doctrine. And when I was hearing the doctrine, hearing their teaching, I know God was really with me during that time. There is no way, I have no idea how I understood that what they were teaching wasn't right. For instance, I would go to church one day, and they would be telling me, uh, because I can't speak in tongues, that means I don't have the Holy Spirit and I'm not saved. And I would hear it and I would take it seriously. But then I would go home, just wanting to read the Bible, not refute what they said. And I'd go to 1 Corinthians. And just so happened to come across this set of rhetorical questions by Paul. Are they all apostles? Do they all preach? Do they all teach? Do they all speak in tongues? The answer to that is no to every one of them. No, they don't all speak in tongues. He's, he's teaching that everybody speaks in tongues. His point is actually that people in the body all have certain gifts that benefit and build up the rest of the body. Everybody here has different gifts. That's Paul's point. So not everybody can speak in tongues. The most damning thing they taught is modalism. I can't talk about that right now because uh, this could go on forever. But they taught modalism, which teaches essentially that they deny the Trinity. What they say is there's not three persons within the one being of God. What they say is that uh, there is one person, Jesus, who plays different roles. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. There's not three different persons, which doesn't make sense at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is in the water, the Spirit's descending, the Father's talking from heaven. On that model, Jesus would have to be throwing his voice, also appearing as a dove and doing all kinds of weird trickery. 
But most relevant to our discussion is that they taught that being baptized in Jesus' name is the way that you receive the Spirit. Being baptized in Jesus' name is the way that you receive the Spirit and you can speak in tongues. In their mind, if you have the formula right, you use the right formula, you can crack the divine code and get spiritual gifts. You might be thinking, what about when Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? They'll just come back and say, because they don't believe in three different persons, what is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Jesus. So they had something for everything. So, this text that we're in this morning, along with Acts 2.38, this is one of the strongest places they would go. They would, they would quote these places often to teach baptismal regeneration in Jesus' name. Now, Orthodox Pentecostals, not Oneness Pentecostals, they don't teach this. They do teach that there are two different uh, experiences with the Holy Spirit. When you believe there's an initial, there's an initial feeling of the Holy Spirit, but it's not till later on you get a second experience, and the second experience is supposed to be whenever you actually have more zeal for God, you start becoming more mature, you start reading the Bible. And so that, that's how they explain, you know, disparity and, and maturity between new believers and mature believers. They're both wrong, especially the oneness Pentecostals, for several reasons. We receive the Spirit by faith. We receive the Holy Spirit by repentance and faith. We can even see in our text that faith is the means of receiving the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 2. Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He's assuming that the moment of faith was the moment that they received the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Also, uh, listen to Paul's question that he asked in Galatians uh, about when you receive the Spirit. He said, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice specifically he's saying hearing, something audible. It's not getting in water. You hear it, you believe, and that's how you get the Spirit. That's what he's saying. And I'm going to give you another example that shows people receiving the Spirit at the moment of faith, and, and specifically in a text that shows before baptism. Turn to Acts 10. We're going to go back to 19, but, so keep a finger there, but Acts 10, I still hear pages turning, I'll wait a second. We're going to begin at verse 44. And to give you context, Peter here has been preaching the gospel to, to Gentiles, and for, verses 44 to 48 records what happened after they hear the gospel. Listen, 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. So I want to stop there for a second. You see that they heard the gospel, believed it, and then they received the Spirit. They already had the Spirit, and they have not yet been baptized. How do I know they haven't been baptized? Let's keep reading. Verses 47 and 48. Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you guys see that? After seeing that they had the Spirit, they received the Spirit by believing and faith, and then he tells them to get baptized afterwards. That's the New Testament teaching about receiving the Spirit. It's not at baptism, it's at faith. And the reason why places like Acts 2.38 and others is because, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but baptism identified who you believed in. So often it would come as a package. You get baptized, that means you believe in Jesus. And it, you're supposed to be baptized when you believe and, and not wait too long. What's happening in our text then? Why did these men, if you receive the Spirit when you believe, why did these men not receive the Spirit? The answer is because they had some truth, but it wasn't enough truth to save them. They didn't actually believe in Jesus. Look at, I believe, verse 4. Five. I didn't write it down. It says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. So this is John. You guys believe in John. He taught a baptism of repentance. But he told the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, Jesus. John's purpose of his ministry was to point to Jesus. So they're following John, but not the person John's pointing to. They're so close, yet so far. The goal of the church is to become married to the Messiah. It's to become married to Christ. That's the picture Paul gives us in Ephesians 6. John is like somebody who gets you ready for a wedding. So uh, he cleans you up. He puts you in a suit, probably made of camel hair. And then... He brings you down the aisle and he takes you to the altar so that you can get married. But if John is the one that you're looking to, you're going to be waiting at the altar for eternity. John got the church ready for a marriage. These men Paul met were just like people just standing at the altar, they're just waiting at the altar to be married. They went through all of the steps, but they failed to take the final and most important step. They were ready to receive Jesus, but didn't actually receive him. And the reason they didn't receive the Spirit wasn't because they did baptism wrong. It's because they didn't have Jesus. 
So once again, why did Paul ask them about their baptism then after hearing they didn't receive the Spirit? That's a weird place to go. You guys do that when you talk to somebody? Have you received the Spirit? I don't know what you're talking about. Where were you baptized in? When did you get baptized? I mean, we don't do that. Why did Paul do that? As I said, it, because there was two baptisms going on, there's a baptism of John, a baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus meant you identified with Jesus. Because they were baptized in John, it meant they were identifying with John. And so it demonstrated they weren't believing in Jesus. Does that make sense? But when they finally realized that John was just preparing them and he was pointing them to Jesus, when they finally realized that, they accepted Jesus, they believed in Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. And another reason, when I said earlier this is a Protestant teaching, another reason that we reject that we receive baptism or receive the Spirit by baptism is because that's teaching salvation by works. That's teaching salvation by works. Paul says in Romans 3, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. No work or good deed that we do, even if that work was ordained by God, can save us. Anything that we do, even if God ordained it, cannot save us. When Paul said that we can't be saved by works of the law, these were Jewish people. They were doing what God ordained. They were following the law. God gave them this law. They were being circumcised. And Paul says, you're not saved by that. So let's not do the New Testament equivalent to what they were doing in the Old Testament. They weren't saved by circumcision. We're not saved by baptism. Only Jesus saves. It took me a, a couple of months, but even as a new believer, me not knowing where anything in Scripture is, I, I just realized that this church, the one that's Pentecostal church, it just wasn't teaching true doctrine. And I, had, and I talked to the pastor there and I told him all my concerns and he didn't want me to leave. And I was just like, I just don't believe what you guys believe. And I was a Christian just for a couple months. And I'll say after that, this is me first becoming a Christian. I didn't want to go to a church for a long time after that. Because that first experience was really, really bad. So what I did is I, I'm not going to party. I'm not partying anymore. I'm not going to clubs anymore. I'm not doing drugs anymore. But I just started praying, Father, please just lead me to truth. I, I don't know what's truth. I know there's so many churches out there. Just lead me to truth. And, and when I had days off, and, and even when I didn't have days off, I would, I would just study the Bible for like 12 hours a day. And after about eight months, I came to the realization that I am a Reformed Baptist. And then I started attending church again. Application. Zeal for truth without Jesus equals nothing. Zeal 
and truth without Jesus is nothing. The story of the Jewish people in the Old and New Testament, it's just, it's a tragic story. Because they were the ones, they were given so much revelation, they were given the prophets, they were given the law, they were given Moses, they were given all these things. But since they didn't have Jesus, they had nothing. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9 and 10 about the Jewish people. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal of they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to Jesus. He's essentially saying that the Jews, they were given everything. God gave them so much. He gave them prophets. He gave them Moses. He gave them all these things. But since they didn't see Jesus, ultimately, they have nothing. They don't have anything. They're like someone standing in Los Angeles with a treasure map that doesn't tell them Anymore, anywhere else to go. They're like someone just standing at the altar. They've, given, they've been given so much, but yet because they're missing the one thing, Jesus, it means nothing, all the stuff they've been given before. Out of all the people on the earth, the religious person, I cannot understand. I cannot understand religious people. What do I mean by that? When I mean religious person, I'm talking about someone who is unregenerated but likes going to church and doing all kinds of church activities and things like that. I can't understand that person. I can't understand the Pharisees in the New Testament and the Gospels. I can't understand people who do religious things like Muslims or Jews but aren't regenerated and don't have Jesus. I just simply can't understand that. And the reason why is because before I became a Christian, I had no desire for any of these things. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to do any of this. I don't understand people that like doing all these things, going through all these motions without actually having a relationship with God. I'm going to ask you the most important question anyone can ever ask you. What are you trusting in to save you? What are you depending on to save you? Do you think that because you grew up in a Christian home that that means you're a Christian? Do you think that you have, because you have good church attendance and volunteer in different areas that that means you're a Christian? That means you're saved. What about baptism? Do you believe that that religious act of baptism gives you God's favor? What about morality? 
Is it because you go to church and also when you come to church, you look around at other people and think you're a little bit better than them or you go out into the community and think you're better than the drunkard or, or whoever else out on the streets? Do you think that because of that, you're going to be saved? None of those things save. If you grew up in a Christian home, if you've been baptized, if you've lived a good life, if you're moral, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. You have nothing. Zeal plus truth minus Jesus equals nothing. Zeal plus truth minus Jesus equals nothing. Jesus plus works equal nothing. The only equation where you get everything is Jesus plus nothing. He's all we need, and he is the only one who can save us. This is why I get upset when I, I hear preachers, they, they stand up in the pulpit, and, and they give a lot of uh, moral speeches, a lot of morality. They tell you, do this, don't do that. I don't like that because none of that actually saves. None of that sanctifies. None of that transforms. Not that there isn't a time and place to, to talk about things we can do, but if it's without the gospel behind it, it means nothing. On the flip side, there are people that are in third world countries. They have nothing. They, they're barefoot. They, they sleep on dirt floors. But they believe in Jesus, and that means that they possess more than any, uh, more than they possess more than everyone combined on Forbes' billionaire list. Our culture tells us that all religions are equally valid as long as you're sincere. If you're sincere, all religions are equally valid. And it's arrogant, actually, and hateful for Christians to claim that they have the truth, that they have the way. For them to say that they are the only truth, that's arrogant. Scripture teaches no matter how much work we do, no matter how sincere we are about our beliefs, if that sincerity isn't in Jesus, it cannot save. There are so many people that have a zeal for God not believing in Jesus and they are sincerely wrong. Sincerity in the wrong object or the wrong person does not save. Religion can't save. Works can't save. Jesus Christ is the only one that saves. 
along with this thought, true doctrine about Jesus can save. True doctrine saves. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep watch on the teaching. You will save yourself and your hearers. Some people find doctrine boring. Some people find theology boring. And I know that there are, there's a mixed crowd here. I know that there are some of you, you guys like deeper theological sermons, and there's some of you, you just want application. But the truth is, my theological people here need to hear some application, and my application people here need to hear some doctrine and theology. I'm not here to just tell you whatever you want to hear. There are some people in the church in America that just say things like, doctrine divides people and we should just unite on love. Doctrine divides, so let's just forget about doctrine and unite on love. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. If people divide on important doctrine, so be it. Because there's nothing more important than true doctrine. If you're listening to, to everything I'm saying this morning and maybe you've, you've thought about what I've said and you're realizing maybe I am depending on something beside, else besides Jesus. Maybe I'm not depending on him to save me. Maybe I'm depending on something else and I'm trusting in something else. And you're convinced that that cannot save you I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? If you said yes, I have great news for you. As Paul said, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the chief of sinners. I know the Bible's inspired and it's infallible, Paul was wrong about that. I'm actually the chief of sinners. He didn't meet me yet, though. (laughs) Church, it's not a place where we come, we put on an act, we put on a smile, and, and we sit there in our heads and we compare ourselves to one another. That's morality. That's self righteousness, and God hates that. You will not find Jesus there. But if you realize that there is grace and forgiveness and that Jesus died for even the very worst of us, once you realize that you are actually no better than anyone else, it's in that brokenness, it's when you've actually hit rock bottom and you're in that place, that's where you'll find Jesus. Scripture says the the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life is a free gift. God is just giving it away. Without money, without effort, comes by believing in Jesus Christ alone. 
Jesus once said to his friends, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The amazing thing about Jesus is he's not only the means to God, as he said, I am the way. He's not only the means to the treasure, but he is the treasure himself. He is also the treasure. Glory in Jesus this morning. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful gospel. Thank you that we don't have to move an inch to the left or to the right to be saved. We trust in your son and believe that there is forgiveness through his name. And I pray that anybody listening in or or watching who is trusting in something else to save them besides Jesus, that you would give them grace to repent, that you would convict them, that you would make a new creation in Jesus Christ. Or maybe there's somebody here who is a believer, but they've, they've just forgotten for a little bit. They've gone into a season where they haven't been trusting like they used to. I pray that you would also give them grace to repent and forgive them. You say if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that, and we pray for that forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen.